Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Highway High Vibe Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations, you have found the Internet's finest podcast. For music that got kicked off of Noah's Ark. We're going to start this episode off, as always, with a little bit of trivia. It is weird speaking uh, without taking a two-year hiatus. <laughs> I will start things off with trivia this week. And I'm going to do the non-audio round yet again. Uh, I will make up for that on the next episode. I'm going to give you the name of an album cover. Okay. And I'd like for you to tell me what kind of animal is on the album. Okay. On the cover of the album. Okay. Okay? Got it. I will start with just the name of the album. If you would like to also have the band name in there, too, I'm happy to give that to you. I think overall, it'll be a very easy quiz for you. Okay. So, shouldn't be too bad. I like easy quizzes. I do too, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, my quiz is brutal this week. The first one is Park Life. Park Life is Blur, and it has a couple Greyhound dogs, I think. Very good. Yep. How about The Seer? The Seer is Swans, and it's it's got like a, it's got a dog, like a Yorkie with human teeth or something. Yeah, Dog is good enough for that one. Okay. That's a great record, though. I like to put it on when I want to get frisky with my wife. Oh, yeah. It is romantic. Yeah. For yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. It's like Barry White around here. It's not... Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next album is... The name of the album is Bark. Do you know which one, what that is? Bark. And I can give you the band name, too, if you'd like. Um... I feel like I should know this. Go ahead and give me the band name. Jefferson Airplane. Must have been real early or much later. It's not one of their big ones that I know of. They were still airplane. Is it a dog? It's a fish. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. okay. I've, yeah, yeah, I, sh- you know, I should have got that. Once you hear it, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, yeah. All right, the next album title is... Killer. 
Oh, that's Alice Cooper, and it's some sort yes. of snake. That's exactly right. The next one is Monster. Okay, that's R.E.M. I saw them on that tour. Uh, that's It's like a, a tiger or a cat or something. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard to tell which one it, which one it might be, but it's got the tiger stripes, cat monkey shaped face. Yeah, it looks very confused. Uh, the next album is Armed Forces. That's Elvis Costello. Now I always get yes. confused because I feel like I feel like the inside cover is sometimes put as the outside cover on this one for some reason. Uh, but it's it's elephants. It is yeah. yes, and I think there is a different. There might be a different version based on whether it's UK or US yeah, release. Yeah, I'm not like sure, that. but there's one that's kind yeah. of like a Jackson Pollocky thing. Right, right. That's right. Uh, that's not the one with animals on. It. Nope, nope. So not the one we're looking for. <laughs> Next album. I don't think you'll need the name of the band for this one. Give them enough rope. Give them enough rope is uh, uh, the Clash, and I guess just a horse, right? Cowboy riding a horse. There's a, there are actually is one is other there, animal is on there. Is there maybe a little dog on there too? It's a buzzard. Oh yeah, there is. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. The next one, the album title is Snowflake Midnight. You think I know this album? I think you would recognize it and you've probably heard it. Okay. But I can give you I, the band yeah, name. Yeah, I need the band name. Mercury Rev. Oh, uh, okay. Um, you're right. You've seen it, but you probably don't own it. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to have to tap out. It's a rabbit. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, the next one is a little bit tough. Self-titled. <laughs> All right, is Wilco's self-titled album. Wilco's self-titled album. Their self-titled album must have been later. Is it, is it is it an egg? Like a chicken egg? It is not. No. <laughs> is that an animal? <laughs> it's not an animal yet, I don't think. Is it? I'm not sure. <laughs> it is a camel. I don't I don't know that record. Uh, it's more in their kind of their sunset period. <laughs> <laughs> That's about the nicest thing you've ever said about Goko. I like a lot of their albums. Yeah, me their too. First me too. Four albums are really great. All right. The next one is Get Your Yaya's Out. Okay, that's the Stones. Uh, there's a a donkey or a mule or something on it. Yeah, a mule, a donkey, either jackass, whatever you want. Um, I don't think it, I would have accepted Burrow. <laughs> the last album is actually two albums I want, both animals from Grinderman 1 and Grinderman 2. Okay. Grinderman 1 is a some sort of monkey. Mhm. And Grinderman 2, oh. I feel like it's a wolf. It is a wolf. Okay. Exactly. Yep. You nailed it. Ooh. Gave me the Nick Cave uh, questions at the end to make me feel better. Yeah, I got a well, I think you should have felt pretty good. You did really well. I think yeah. you missed two out of all of that. Yeah, so. you're you're you do much better than you're about to do. Um, I assume. I know your audio quizzes. <laughs> why we stopped for two years i've <laughs> had two years to plan this thing okay all right audio quiz it is one of my um a bunch of sounds mixed together type quizzes 
So there's going to be 12 different animal noises. Some are actual animals. Some are humans making the animals. Some are other things. You just need to tell me. I'm going to go easy. You can just tell me either the band or the name of the song. This is pretty difficult. And so I would say if you can get about half of them, they're doing pretty good. How many again are there? There are 12 different songs. Okay. All right. Are you ready? No. Here we go. think did you get any of them we are going to listen to them again at the end of the episode i do think i have probably four or five that i'm already feel pretty that i feel okay with as long as i don't have to do both band and song yeah i think i can get i think i can get maybe up to half by the time i hear it again first five or six for you should be easy and the last six not so much yeah you're never correct on that (laughs) All right, come on, St. Francis. Let's let's talk about some animals. Giddy up. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. After spasmodically slapping away the various crumbs, pencil shavings, toenail clippings, and unverifiable abject detritus from his velour bathrobe, Brian Wilson pulled a live bullfrog from his underwear and laid a needle down on his most recent favorite record, which was a 1963 sound effect album called Mr. D's Machine. A recent series of aggressively vibrant flashbacks culled from a swath of various LSD trips, or PTLSD, had opened up a new spiritual realm for Wilson, He knew that he needed patience and understanding. However, the experience also ripped open a dark chorus in his brain. The mischievous voices were relentless, reminding him that threats circled around his house waiting for him to leave. The sounds helped. Music was his only escape. A lonesome whistle blew from the speakers, a track called Train Number 58, The Owl at Edison, California. As he set the record function on a nearby reel-to-reel. Wilson checked to make sure it was recording, though he knew it was. At this point, he was almost always already recording all of the sounds around him. 
The train sounds were especially soothing to him as he quietly drifted even further from reality. A couple months later, Wilson had an album mostly ready. His brother's cousin and buddy shipped off for a quick tour of Japan and Hawaii on the strength of a quickly thrown-together doo-wop cover single, Barbara Ann, that the band had no idea Columbia had even issued. When they returned, Brian presented his vision to the band. They were confounded, especially Mike, who couldn't stand this new, strange, psychedelic coke-emotion. It lacked a certain type of vehicular assault featured in most of their songs. Nary a car or surfboard to be found. As the band was putting finishing flourishes on the record, Brian remembered his beloved train sound. He knew he wanted a non-musical album tag at the end of the record to close out Caroline No. As they punched in the train sound, Wilson was ecstatic. But it wasn't quite enough. He had an idea. Wilson had two beloved dogs, Banana, a beagle, and Louie, a Weimaraner. He brought them to the Western Studios and instructed them to lay down a vocal track. The dogs were skilled. Some, most, say even more skilled than Mike Love. But Brian still wasn't satisfied. He wanted to bring in a horse. Engineer Chuck Britz said, Nay, hold your horses, Wilson. Honestly, God, the, the horse is tame. Just bring his trainer along behind him. I got Can you get it today? Get it down here. The well-known barking would prove to be one of the most indelible album closers ever. The sound effect would also be partially influential in the album title. Depending on who you believe, it was Mike or Carl who came up with the idea for the Pet Sounds name. Either Mike thought of the idea after the yipping finale and San Diego Zoo goat photo shoot, or inspiration struck Carl when contemplating how Brian was making sounds that were like his very own pets. Either way, it is impossible to imagine the legend of pet sounds without that notorious yapping capping its majesty. Halfway across the country, and a year or two later, a considerably less famous band was sitting around listening to pet sounds. The Denverites were not so much focused on the dogs, but on the strange science fiction sounding instrument that was looming in the background of, I just wasn't made for these times. John Emelin was already an amateur thereminista, and he was excited to hear his beloved theremin, though it was actually a tannerin or electrotheremin, on a rock record. I guess I just wasn't made for these times. He had an idea. Years later in New York, Lothar and the Hand People issued their debut album, Presenting. Lothar and the Hand People were notable for a couple reasons. 
First, the band was one of the earliest adopters of fully integrating synthesizers and electronic instruments in a rock sound. Second, the band, for all intents and purposes, was fronted by a machine, Lothar the Theremin. The hand people were merely the meat sacks doing the bidding of the otherworldly electronic box. Seeing that their audiences were mostly drawn to the theremin anyway, they might as well lean into it, without quite touching it. Electronic music fans were pretty much the sort of people who rooted for HAL 9000, so they gave the crowd a voltaic god they were clamoring for. Alas, Lothar and the Hand People were not the Beach Boys. Despite getting a couple consistently strange records out and playing with a who's who of 60s rockers, they couldn't get far enough beyond the gimmick with the quality of their music and the copious amounts of LSD they were consuming. According to our Sid Bear-ometer, they consumed an amount that lands them squarely between Easter Everywhere and Locust Abortion Technician. Now... Sit in a comfortable position, close your eyes, and listen very closely to the sound of my voice. Imagine that there is nothing but you and the sound, floating freely high above the earth. Now, as you listen, you will begin to relax. Their influence was far more impactful than their success, starting a small trend of robot-curious bands in their wake. Among their acolytes were a young Keith Emerson, who loved to watch them fiddle with the Moogs, and Jonathan Richman, who states that Lothar and company encouraged his nasally off-center pizzazz. Also, they were the direct inspiration for the Bostonian theremin-only band, the Lothars. Animals and robots might seem like strange bedfellows for rock albums, but once you know what you're looking for, they are kind of hard to miss. There are hundreds of examples of bands who have piped in animal noises for any number of reasons. To provide atmosphere, as a story song plot device, just to add some insanity, or or possibly even something criminally untoward. Think of all the New Age fodder that relies on bird songs, crickets, frogs, and tortured pig whales. Hazel Atkins, Lux Interior, Ray Stevens, and Raffi would all be out of work if they couldn't sing animal noises, and if they were still alive. <laughs> and of course, artists as robots is almost commonplace now, what with the non-humanoid success of acts like Kraftwerk, Devo, Manor Astromance, Servotron, Daft Punk, and Michael McDonald. Fauna and automatons in popular music surround us like we're all riding out Tron cycles to Coachella during some post-apocalyptic doomscape. 
But what lies beyond this casual relationship? What happens when bands relinquish some control of their aesthetic sound to orangutans and toasters or dugongs and doomsday devices? Are we breaking new ground or just finding yet another source of novelty? Or both? Over two episodes, we are going to explore the merger of non-human caterwauling and popular music caterwauling. How much of this is simply a gimmick and how much is sincere exploration of music outside of the influence of mankind? We will be returning to this topic in a later episode where we tackle robot musicians from player pianos to terminators. But today we will devolve to dance among the beasts. So tell Marlon Perkins to dust off that guitar, St. Francis to open the cages, and David Attenborough to tickle himself some ivories. Get ready for a thrilling reptilian, amplified amphibians, ambles of mammals. When this ark gets to rockin', be wary of knockin'. This petting zoo is gonna get heavy. Today, Non-Human Bands, Part 1, The Animal Kingdom. We often think of art as a purely human endeavor, a distinction between us highly evolved ape men and the rest of the Animalia kingdom. There are plenty of instances of dogs, elephants, seals, dolphins, and even naked mole rats making amazing abstract art in captivity. We've all seen monkeys fleeing their feces like little Jackson Pollocks. Cows have sold hoof-crafted artisanal salt lick sculptures for more than my mortgage. Utterly unbelievable. But beyond these captive animals doing art at the bidding of the human caretakers, there are instances of beasts using creative means of communicating their emotions and needs. Songs of aggression, dances of attraction, creative rituals of survival. Honeybees use a waggle dance to communicate where the best pollen action is. The bowerbird makes exquisitely complex nests with an array of different vegetation and foliage complete with colorful decorations used to announce to the ladybirds that this house was ready for some hot corvid mating. Pretty sure that's what Frank Lloyd Wright's deal was, too. And while animals may lack symbolism that some argue is an essential aspect of true artistic expression, sorry, Moby, these instances still show that there is a thin line between creativity for pleasure and creativity for survival. Animal innovation clearly straddles that line. Darwinism meets pop art. To look at this strange and often unsavory coupling of man and animal, we need to go all the way back to the 15th century, to the man known as the Spider King. Francis King Louis XI was, by all accounts, a pretty despicable guy. He rebelled openly against his father, watched apathetically as his child bride died, poisoned pregnant mistresses, encouraged strange medieval operations on his subjects, betrayed his closest confidants with glee, and lived a life of absolute paranoia, 
all while becoming one of the most powerful monarchs in French history. A lot like Philip K. Dick running France on a steady diet of amphetamines and red meat. But these foibles are nothing in comparison to his strangest legend, that of the Piganino. Louis had a strange commission for one very lucky musician in his court named Abbe de Bagne. The Mad King asked him to make an instrument constructed of pigs. Abbe thought it over, asked the king for a month and a ton of cash, and returned thirty days later with the world's first, and hopefully only, pig piano, like a, a Hammond. <laughs> the ham-fisted instrument consisted of a keyboard with keys attached to sharp prods. On the other side of the device was a tight pen of immobile pigs arranged in ascending order from the puniest piglet to the heftiest hog, like little toe to big toe. The idea was that as you played the keys, the appropriately sized pig would squeal the exact note, giving the desired orchestral effect. Hopefully, this is apocryphal. It seems that mostly this idea was used satirically by critics of cruel sovereignties. Other terms for this device include the pig organ, the hog harmonium, the porco forte, the keyboard, the swineway piano, the harpsichord, and of course, the baconator. A similar conjectural instrument is written about in Germany called the Katzenorgel or Katzenklavier, a cat organ where different keys smash the tails of various felines, creating perfectly beautiful mealities. As crazy as all this sounds, the basic idea, without all the horrific animal cruelty, is the basis for the best-selling animal record of all time. Mike Spalla was bored with the same old Christmas music that he was composing for his father's production company. On a whim, Mike decided to try and merge three of his favorite things in the world. Cats, and music, and cats. He used a pre-programmed cat meow sound that he found on his keyboard to play jingle bells. But it sounded stiff and sad, like a pellet buried deep within the litter box. And it gnawed at him like a hairball that just couldn't fully be released. He got a bunch of portable recording equipment and started recording cats. His own cats. His friend's cats. Stray cats. Brian Setzer. He would walk around L.A. with cans of homemade Fancy Feast, trying to lure reluctant kitties into mewling into his mic. When all was said and done, he had a thousand different cat sounds. He started assembling his catatonic masterpiece. He quit his job and focused entirely on his pet project. His wife, who didn't somehow understand his brilliance yet, decided to hang in there, baby, and kept the family afloat as her husband spent every day pounding pizzicato pussy purrs until he finally emerged with a tape. Twas the sound of Christmas future. Once it was felinely completed, he sent his tape to a couple of radio stations around California that reluctantly played his meowster piece. 
Cat ladies and gentlemen everywhere set down their crochet needles and balls of yarn and crank their radio dials up to two. The magic sound was as addictive as it was destructive. It was nearly pure catnip with just a slight trace of PCP. A small run of a thousand tapes sold out in ten days. And, just like that, an empire was born. Spala controlled the cat music industry like a man shining a laser pointer at the carpet. Mankind could only helplessly paw for more. Over the next two decades, Spala released four Jingle Cats records, two Jingle Dogs records, and one very disturbing and possibly incriminating Jingle Babies record. Spala lapped it all up with the second seminal recording, 1994's Here Comes Santa Claus, winning praise from Billboard for its unexpected sales. History hasn't been kind to the Jingle Cats oeuvre, as it is now recognized as the third worst Christmas carol ever, right behind Tiny Tim's Santa Claus Has Got the AIDS This Year and Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time. Lest you think that Spala's cat splicing is some sort of brilliant breakthrough idea, animal sampling has been a source of novelty hits since the 1950s. Carl Weissman, a Danish recording artist and engineer with state-of-the-art equipment from Denmark State Radio, which he used to make ornithological recordings. At least, he had been trying to. But every time he set up his equipment in the perfect spot, at the perfect time, and clicked the recorder on to capture his bird's playful ditties, his lummox of a neighbor's brutish dogs would start up again with their incessant yipping and low-brow yapping. He swore he could even hear his neighbor guffawing at him in the background. Day after day, week after week, each and every attempt would be ruined, and Weissman would end up once again sobbing alone in his very quiet room, robbed of the songs that he believed could make him whole. Rather than allowing those hindering hounds to maul any more of his already crumbling existence, he decided to take those lemon dogs and make lemon dog aid. It was in 1949 that Weissman, with the help of producer Don Charles, pieced together multi-pitched dog howls and barks and yips using a reel-to-reel tape recorder. The barks were meticulously and agonizingly tweaked and pitch-controlled. This kind of editing was a relatively new technological development in music, as this new German technology was just starting to spread to the post-World War II society. Tape recordings opened up a whole new world of possibilities in music. Pierre Schaeffer's revolutionary work in music concrete techniques had started just a year prior. And if you're interested in this incredible process, you should listen to our episode on the female pioneers of electronic music. Or you can continue to listen to this if you are more interested in the origins of the Meow Mix commercial. Click pause now, or just sit and stay. Mr. Charles took the recorded dog sounds of the neighborhood pup bullies. Dolly, Pearl, Pussy, Caesar, and King. They sounded like an all-star Nashville jug band and turned them into a tape music composition of traditional Danish songs for a children's TV program. 
He eventually used the same techniques, turning the well-positioned barks in pop music and carols for a wider audience. Released as a 45 on RCA Victor, the Singing Dogs took Oh Susanna all the way to number 22 on the Billboard charts in 1955. Amazingly, the Christmas single was released again in 1971, and that charted even higher on the strength of their version of Jingle Bells, which has since been a perennial way to uncheer your holiday mood. The Singing Dogs became the first exposure for a general audience of tape composition, much to the chagrin of Schaefer, who detested the mangling of his art form into a literal dog-and-pony show. For his part, Weissman didn't really seem to care all that much, since he had no interest in breaking into the music game and used all the money he made from his crooning canines to keep making his beloved bird recordings interruption-free. The success of The Singing Dogs was not lost on other labels. Within a year of the dog's dominating release, Cadence Records set free a stray single called Pirate Parrot that used a real talking parrot as backing vocals. The song is Polly the worst thing you'll hear all day. Well, arguably, maybe not as bad as Jingle Babies. There was a parrot, a secret agent of the crowd. Alleged comedian Spike Jones never won to let a coattail go by without latching on enlisted some barking dogs to cover Dean Martin's Memories Are Made of This. This made some sense, since both Dino and the dogs sing like they are perpetually looking for a bone. Sweet, sweet memories you gave me You can't beat the memories you gave me Sweet, sweet memories you gave me You can't beat the memories you gave me Sweet, sweet Afraid he might be out of a job, Jerry Lewis quickly had those dogs put down. This tried-and-true novelty formula led to an uncanny conclusion with the release of 1983's Beetle Barkers by the Woofer and Tweeters Ensemble, 
who dubbed themselves New Zealand's Phenomenal Dog Combo. The yapping covers of the Fab Four give us a glimpse of what the band might have sounded like if Ringo was allowed to sing every song. For some reason, this record has been recently reissued, but be warned that listening to it will age you in both dog and Ringo years. And because the shtick never gets old, we still have plenty of animal sampling records running wild in the jungles of popular culture. Bernie Krause, the famous soundscape ecologist and pioneering electronic musician, had one of the strangest progressions of a musical career ever. Starting as a tenor in The Weavers, Krauss quickly abandoned folk music for the newfangled Moog synthesizers and quickly became one of the only capable players in the mid-60s. But by the end of the 70s, he left the synths behind and turned his focus to field recordings, ambient sounds, and environmental soundscapes. More on that in a bit. First, here's a whale of a tale about Bernie Krauss. In 1985, during whale migration season one, wayward humpback whale named Humphrey made a wrong turn and ended up heading for Sacramento. For the record, there is no right turn that leads to Sacramento. (laughs) For several days, teams of volunteers and experts tried everything they could to drive Humphrey in the right direction, but nothing worked. Eventually, Bernie Krause was called in. Krause manipulated and looped a whale recording that was originally only one minute and 20 seconds long and turned it into a 20-minute symphony used to lure Humphrey back to safety. It was an orchestration that might have inspired Shatner and Nimoy to get their band back together and create 1986's Star Trek IV. Krauss went on to create his magnum opus, 1988's Gorillas in the Mix, which is constructed entirely of animal field recordings played on a sampling keyboard. Here is a totally bananas clip from that album that has a certain appeal called Ape no mountain high enough. as um, Dr. Bernie Krause was using some animal puns, we should put some animal puns into this episode. Oh my gosh, I can't believe we didn't think about that. I know, I know. More recently, the hip-hop super duo and super trooper super fans, Run the Jewels, released a remix album called Meow the Jewels, which incorporates cat sounds into all the instrumentals. The idea was that the group was parroting all the money grabs of releasing super deluxe albums for large sums of money, and jokingly offered a cat remix album as a stretch goal. Well, fans pounced on this idea and started a Kickstarter to raise the money for the band to release it. 
They raised $60,000 because money is no object when you have the possibility of cat-wrapped kitty ditties and the internet. RTJ got several prominent producers to build the remix with plenty of ridiculous feline ferocity and released a deluxe version of the album with the cat remixes on the second LP. It was pure catnip for the fans, and the money was donated to charity. So, all hope is not lost. Here is Meow Purdy. I'm up at midnight, I'm dipping off in my knees like a gun on a metal piece. I've been knees, I fist to my wrist. I'm lurking, serving all pussies who lack a purpose. I got them filled up with frizzack like Miss I get you all recite. I'm looking, lurking on bitches, twerking for service to bitches, bagging some burger. I'm yelling, screaming, and cursing. I'm putting pistols and faces at random places like, bitch, give it up. I stand adjacent to Satan. Batman chilling the villains is here. No Jesus is here. I hear the demons in my ear. Also capitalizing on the Meow Mania was none other than beloved J.M. Smucker Company, the maker of a number of pet and supposedly non-pet food. If you've ever enjoyed Hostess Cakes, Uncrustables, Snossages, Dunkin' Donuts, Folgers Coffees, Kibbles and Bits, or Meow Mix Cat Food, then you can thank the good folks at Smuckers for the deliciousness and for your anal seepage issues. In 2021, the brand released a five-track single-side LP called Meow Mix Meow Remix, featuring five reinterpretations of the classic infectious mewling jingle that will have you passing furballs through your urethra and running for the litter box. There's a calico country duo, a Latin alley cat groove, a cool cat jazzy tabby, some domesticated pop by a band called Luna, not that Luna, and naturally, a feral black cat metal version by a cat band called The Endless Hiss. And yes, inexplicably and sadly, I have this record. Good to listen to for my weekly pounding of Smucker's Twinkies and, of course, the resulting irritable bounce syndrome come down. So we're going to take a little bit of a departure from these outrageous novelty songs and transition into some outrageous academic songs. Starting in the early 80s, there was a small but dedicated group of researchers who began studying what is now called zoo musicology, which focuses on the musical aspects of animal sounds and animal perceptions of music. Zoo musicology confronts, if not outright challenges, the notion that music is a solely human medium. This new discipline explores the musicality of animals, music made to sound like animals, music made for animals, music made with animals, and guar. (laughs) The auditory byproducts of these investigations typically fall somewhere between field recordings, ambient soundscapes, new age music, smooth jazz, and live stream sloth neuterings. It's a way of seeing the world as an open mic night. The ideological pairing of animals and music harkens back from time immemorial. Ancient Mesopotamian art panels have renderings of bulls playing stringed lyres and foxes playing maraca-esque rattles. Sounds crazy, right? Crazy like a, um, something. I can't think of it. 
Hand-forged instrumentals were often made to look like different sorts of beasts. Generations of sheep herders have passed down songs that were used to soothe and set the mood for their wily, playing-hard-to-get livestock, which explains the etymology of the word pastoral and also one of the reasons Bono emits a tangy sheep shit aroma. So strong is this man-and-animal bond that humans have long endeavored to match their music to that of animals. For example, Looney Bird composer Rameau's 1728 composition The Hen, which creates an auditory rumble reminiscent of the sound my stomach makes when I smell Popeye's chicken. Or take Charles Camille Saint-Saëns' Carnival of the Animals, which has 14 movements, speaking of my stomach, each meant to represent one circus animal which he thought so pridefully of that he stipulated it could only be made public after his death. We should probably do that with this episode. <laughs> More famously, Vivaldi and Beethoven each had compositions with imitations of animal songs, like Impossible Burgers with music. By far, it is the song of the birds that is the animal noise most often integrated into human music. Mozart was so wooed by the melody of a particular starling in a Viennese pet shop that he took this feathered minstrel home and transcribed its melody. Mozart so loved this bird that he held an elaborate funeral service when it died, including veiled mourners, dirgy hymns, and the maestro himself reciting a poem that he composed for his silent songbird. A little fool lies here, whom I held dear, a starling in the prime of his brief time. And then everyone who was gathered was served a small piece of the delicious pie that the bird was baked into. <laughs> the most famous or possibly infamous composer of bird songs was the Frenchman, Olivier Messiaen. Messiaen was an interesting fella. He suffered from chromesthesia, which is a form of synesthesia where a person perceives colors when hearing different chords. He took his unique perspective, along with his love of ornithology, and transcribed the bird songs, eventually incorporating these pieces into his music. 1953's Les Reviers de Ousseau is an entire dawn chorus developed exclusively from bird song transcriptions and cough syrup. If you want something with a darker tint, you should listen to Apode from Chronicomi, which consists of 18 violins simultaneously playing 18 different bird songs. Probably a lot like what Tepi Hedren hears whenever she sees a seagull, or a chubby English dude. Mm -hmm. 
A contemporary of Olivier Messiaen was Pancho the Parrot, San Diego Zoo's famous winged singing star. Some intrepid and probably inebriated zookeepers decided to teach this caged bird to sing and gave flight to one of the most renowned novelty acts the zoo had ever seen. It didn't take long before gaggles of admirers began flocking to get a glimpse of Pancho in action. He even made it onto TV, all the way to the Mike Douglas Show and The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Soon it was decided that Pancho needed a record deal. He was provided a full backing band and, with the use of some inventive editing, eventually hatched an egg of a 45 with him squawking through a medley of songs. Pancho was advertised as an opera-style singer, but he sounds more like an opera-style singer choking on broken glass. So, still pretty good. The 1981 single, backed by a couple other loud-mouthed parrots, Bobby and Lolita, singing Copacabana, sold over 4,000 copies at the gift shop and Woo. was reissued by the zoo as a single. Here is a morsel of Pancho singing the standard, I Left My Heart in San Francisco proving to can do anything you put your heart to. I'm going home to my city by the In a similar vein, an Australian orangutan named Cluette released a SoundCloud-only jazz single in 2016 called Give Me a Clue in support of the Adelaide Zoo. They should have just thrown that chimp on the Barbie. Oh, God. <laughs> The practice of melding animal noises into music was becoming more and more advanced, with scientist musicians making animal imitation music, specifically designed to be broken down and analyzed as an art form and evolutionary function. This alchemy is most frequently done with bird songs. For example, zoo musicologist Hollis Taylor, who created a three-and-a-half-hour musical transcription of the Pied Butcher Bird's cackles. Dr. Emily Doolittle, it's a pretty good name for an animal communication specialist, huh? Created her Song of Seals using a children's choir to imitate seal vocalizations, which could just as easily been created as a horror soundtrack, if you're a fish.
There are countless studies of animal preferences in music. Much like music made for plants, academics have a strong interest in how human aesthetic influences animal behavior. These scientists seem to revel in the cruel practice of forcing helpless animals to listen to the worst music imaginable. As if the animals are Noriega and the scientists need to get him to exit his compound post-haste. The research usually concludes that some animals indeed do have preferences. Goldfish can be trained to know the difference between Igor Stravinsky and Johann Sebastian Bach. Java sparrows have even been shown to have a preference in their classical music, choosing historical hottie Bach over atonal asshole Schoenberg. Good choice, ladies. Music that gets rodenticized or sped up to match the hearing range of rats has, in, has enriching effects on their behavior. Calming music, specifically Michael Stipe's sultry baritone on Everybody Hurts by R.E.M., has been shown to increase cow milk production by 3%. If Stipey is the one squeezing the others, it increases another whopping 27%. Dogs are calmer in kennels when listening to classical music as opposed to heavy metal. When dogs are exposed to more than a feeling by Boston, there's a significant increase in them attempting to eat their own heads. All this leads to the question of whether or not a connection exists between humans and animals, and how music is listened to. Most relevant for this show are the zoo musicologists who make beautiful music with animals. And we're not going back into those sheep herders here. Francois Bernard Maché is the French contemporary composer who coined the term zoo musicology and he has long incorporated unedited animal sounds and natural dyspepsia-like noises into his compositions. Here is the interspecies yam jam from the 1970s called Music to Eat Thanksgiving Dinner By from Jim Nolan, which features some flute players getting down and gobbling it up with 300 turkeys. Finally, an animal collective I want to listen to. By far the big dog of ecomusicology is David Rothenberg, with no less than 16, count them, 16 records. The Harvard-educated professor of philosophy once noticed that the songs of the hermit thrush sounded a lot like a Miles Davis solo, and he became obsessed with what making music with animals would reveal about his own humanity. Coo, man, coo. I would have assumed it sounded more like Charlie Parker, but what do I know? So he took his clarinet to the zoo and started jamming with some pretty fantastic results. Mm-hmm. 
Not wanting to be pigeonholed as a bird-only musician, Rothenberg went on a Captain Ahab-like vision quest in search of a fabled, elusive whale that he'd heard sounded like Thelonious Monk. The resulting whale music was killer. Here's a clip from a live performance of some serious blowhole blues featuring Rothenberg and a humpback whale. drowning Kenny G in his own sick sounds like. A quick aside about whale songs. We need to address the elephant in the room here. You can't possibly do an animal music show without mentioning the record Songs of the Humpback Whale, which was released by bioacoustician Roger Payne in 1970 and became the best-selling nature record of all time. Payne retrieved recordings using brand new military technology called the hydrophone. When it wasn't listening in on Ruski subs, it was picking up what whales were putting down, which Payne recognized had patterns and almost rhythmic cadences. People in the 1970s, now over their pet rocks and the Mr. Bill show, stampeded to record stores to get their mitts on a copy of the album that went multi-platinum. Payne turned Shamu into Shamwow. National Geographic even put out a flexi-disc version of an excerpt of a whale song and distributed that to 10 million subscribers. Most people attribute the Save the Whales movement to this record. It was also used on recordings by Judy Collins, Kate Bush, Leo Fair, and of course in the Star Trek IV movie. In the words of Spock, They like you very much, but they are not the hell your whales. Back to Rothenberg. He recently formed a band with electronic pioneer and avant-garde accordionist Pauline Oliveros called the Cicada Dream Band. They recorded an album in the midst of the once-every-17-year plague of cicadas. The drones of the insects, along with electronically manipulated accordion and clarinet and the wordless singing, make for a skin-shedding listening experience of truly experimental music. Rothenberg continues on the cutting edge of zoo musicology and has collaborated with other non-animals, including Peter Gabriel, DJ Spooky, Laurie Anderson, and Scanner. I thought you said non-animals. Biomusic, a sister field to zoo musicology, is the specific term for music made from manipulation of non-human sounds, like animals, plants, and even biological processes, like brainwaves, snot farming, or burping the star-spangled banner. 
Body music is a genre for another episode. Biomusic usually goes beyond simply adding animal sounds to the music, or playing music with the animals, to manipulating the natural sounds toward ambient soundscapes, often exploring what is called biophony. Basically soundscapes, acoustic relationships of environments and living things. Kraus, mentioned earlier, released an album in 1970 that explored these acoustic environs with his musical partner Beaver. Not an actual Beaver, which we have to make damn clear in this episode, I suppose. The ahead-of-its-time album, called In a Wild Sanctuary, is notable for being one of the first ecology-themed albums using living sounds from both terrestrial and marine habitats and the still-nascent electronic music. Recently, multimedia artist Stuart Hyatt has been using ultrasonic echolocation of the endangered Indiana bat to make experimental music, often having to change the frequencies to be audible by human ears. It's even a bit stranger as animal tracking data is getting turned into music, like in The Lake by Julie Freeman, which cast a wide net by using bioacoustic tags of 16 fish in a small acre-sized pond and underwater hydrophones to sonically translate the movement of the fish into slippery tunage, proving you really can tune a fish. <laughs> As natural science and art continue to collide, new perspectives on our surroundings are constantly bubbling to the surface. We are swimming in a never-ending sea of metaphors. To what heights do these decades-long, highly researched studies of the interconnectedness of human-animal musicality lead us, you may ask? Why, to a head-banging, heavy-metal-squawking parrot, of course. Waldo was a 13-year-old Congo-African gray parrot when his band Hatebeak dropped their first album. Lured to the mic with dehydrated bananas, crackers, and a signed photo of Lemmy, Waldo would screech and snarl over face-melting, grind-metal riffage. The death squawks, doom calls, and despondent chirps are pretty much pieces of whatever Waldo feels like crowing from the garbage disposal to the fire alarm to the theme from The Andy Griffith Show. Bandmates, guitarist Mark Sloan and drummer Blake Harrison, who also play in Pig Destroyer, love that name and I bet King Louis XI would have loved it too. 
basically started the band as a lark or on a wing in a prayer and found a friend in the garrulous bird who had no problem imitating the metal vocals he was exposed to. The song titles often parody other bands, all while including the typical Lovecraftian doomscapes. Formed in 2003, Hate Peak has probably become the world's foremost animal band, and for good reason. They surpass expectations with an exacting, tumultuous brutality that is extremely excellent. The sound of the eagle returning day after day to devour Prometheus's liver. Despite never playing live, since he's a parrot, (laughs) Waldo plumed quite a fan base and released several singles and a full-length album. Where's Waldo? Turns out he was in our hearts the whole time. Time to change the newspaper at the bottom of our ribcage. Caninus is probably the next most famous animal-fronted band these days, so far at least. A death-grind band from NYC, Caninus is fronted by Budgie and Basil. Two female pit bulls, basically the Simon and Garfunkel of dog corps. The brutal barking of Caninus is far more intimidating than any utterance from any mere two-legged creature, with songs like Bite the Hand That Breeds You, No Dogs, No Master, and Fuck the American Kennel Club. Caninus is an overtly political band that promotes activism for animal rights, veganism, pet adoption, and fetch. My Precious Blood guitarist and New York City Council member Justin Brannon owned Budgie and Basil and trained them to unleash the beast with snarls, growls, and barks that make those Norwegian guys heal and whimper. Caninus had a couple splits, including a seminal single with Hate Beak and one full length. Sadly, Budgie and Basil have both moved on to the great doghouse in the sky. Or perhaps they're chasing their tails for Beelzebub in the flames of eternity. The best in show twin pillars that are Hate Beak and Caninus have hoisted a whole new genre of animal metal. Looks like Waldo isn't the only macabre macaw. There have been other winged lead singers like Alan Pingui from the Ukrainian grindcore band Dangerous Pigeons, with the soothing yet diseased cooing of ratbirds that isn't quite as terrifying as Waldo's eye-gouging singing. Additionally, Nagalaria Faleri goes even a bit more foul by being fronted with a parrot named Luna Bird, but also having an AI drumming program 
and a human performing music in an Eastern-influenced microtonal 19-EDO scale, as if one gimmick wasn't enough. They avoided being a one-trick pony, I guess. Get it? Pony, pony, pony joke? Okay, anyways. Oh, and all the songs on the album Prognosis Dire are named after human brain afflictions, or bizarre methods of treating them. Here's Latex Agglutination. There's also Pugtopsy, which you might have guessed is a pug-fronted heavy metal band. Really, it sounds more like an old man trying and failing to clear phlegm, but you have to admire the diminutive lead singer, Pupcake Lovebacken, for the effort. Here is the song Snorts of Sorrow, which you can feel good about because all the profits from Pugtopsy merch tables goes to a non-profit animal rescue called Neuterhead. Ace of Spades. Why stop at dogs and birds? There's a whole world of caterwauling critters to choose from. For another domestic example, there's Katera, fronted entirely by feral street cats who may or may not know the whereabouts of MC Scat Cat's carcass. Or how about Insect Grinder, the Russian experimental grindcore band helmed by a small colony of crickets trapped in a jar, creating constant, unsettling drones and chirps. Jiminy Cricket makes you want to fumigate your brain. That band really bugs me. All the way from China comes Pig Cage, which sources local farm-to-stage pork sounds and adds them to blue-ribbon sizzling metal. This seems very apropos, as hog-calling was just voted in as the newest Olympic sport. Pig Cage, however, has trouble bringing home that bacon, since the Chinese government swines aren't especially swell with swine shriek songs. But here's a slice of the other white meat. Finally, if regular slaughterhouse pigs are just too massive for you, how about guinea pigs? Boar glue, umlauts on the O and the U, are the rodent pals of members of the band Death and Pig Destroyer. 
taco tico and sugar. We'll bubble, chut, and rumble strut over the smooth sounds of death metal. Oh, and if you want to know what Borglue is, you should Google it. It may or may not have to do with the massive amounts of petrified semen produced by male guinea pigs. Or what Billy Joe calls a smoothie. A few different animals have run free and branched out into non-metal genres. The most famous is the Thai Elephant Orchestra, which is made up of 14 highly trained pachyderms who play music on heavy-duty traditional Thai instruments. They play both fully improvisational music and compositional music that requires their trainers to teach them different rhythmic lines. Elephant bands go all the way back to early American circuses, such as Barnum and Bailey, who made use of the creature's ability to distinguish 12 tones on a musical scale and remember simple melodies. The show does turn to shit if a mouse shows up, though. Here is one of their songs from their track-by-track cover of the Fleetwood Mac album, Rumors. There's also an up-and-coming cat rock and roll band called Wait for it. Tuna and the Rock Cats. Huh? Maybe you shouldn't have waited. (laughs) The band is a bunch of semi-trained cats and one chicken, Gregory Peck, who play modified instruments like guitars, keyboards, drums, cowbells, and chimes. From what I've heard, the Rock Cats are not very good, especially when compared to the elephants, but they do look better in heavily sequined collars. They must be doing okay for themselves with appearances on Stephen Colbert and being able to raise over 30 grand for their rescue program to buy a tour bus and a giant ball of yarn. Maybe you've been hitting the catnip a little hard and need a calmer vibe for your catnap in the sun. Ambient Kitty is the right sound to sit on your lap. After her DJ owner discovered she had a talent for sitting on her launch pad soundboard, as she would move around to get comfy, the mellow sounds she produced along with her soft purring created a musical equivalent to the chill-out litter box. As lazy as Garfield and as obtuse as Eno. (laughs) 
All Hark, the All Lark band that makes up the Copenhagen art installation called From Here to Ear. French artist Celeste Borsier Mugnot put a flock of zebra finches in a room nestled with electric guitars and other miscellaneous instruments. As the finches land on the strings, they create pretty whacked out guitar sounds. It's basically early sonic youth with better lyrics. This fascination with animals and music is unlikely to heal anytime soon, even as the seriousness of the topic seems to head in two divergent paths. On one paw, biomusic and zoo musicology is obediently delving into legitimate research on music processing as adaptive functioning in numerous species with provocative implications on evolutionary and communicative development. On the other paw, There's the class of the internet giving Nora the piano-playing cat 10 million views with duckbill, platypus, doom metal, and clownfish exotica right around the corner. Whether gimmick, true aesthetic attraction, or somewhere in the murky in-between, there is undoubtedly evidence that animals react to human-made music and humans react to animal-made music, which ensures that we haven't finished molting into this wonderfully feral music territory. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is kind of a part one of uh, non-human music. We're going to come back around to robot robot music, AI stuff, stuff like that, uh, in a few episodes. Probably not next episode, but a little bit down the line. So let's listen to a few songs. Oh, that sounds good. I'm going to go first in this episode with a song from an artist named Mighty Sparrow, and the song is called Congo Man. Taking place. There I saw the Congo 
That was Congo Man by Mighty Sparrow, and I have it on the album called Sparrow Mania, Wit, Wisdom, and Soul from The King of Calypso, 1960-74, to 74, and that was put out on Strut Records in 2011. Congo Man itself was recorded in 1964, but had actually been banned from radio play in Trinidad, where it was released and written, until 1989. It is a song about racism, cannibalism, and Conolingus. Mighty Sparrow has released 82 albums and 202 singles since 1955 and is known as Calypso King of the World. His songs are full of social commentary and political protest. Uh, in 1963, he wrote a song about Kennedy versus Khrushchev. In 1980, he wrote a song about the Ayatollah Khomeini. Even as recently as 2018, he wrote an anti-Russian oligarch song called Neurosis of the Rich. He got started in, in something called Pekong, which is a Calypso tradition. Uh, it's a verbal battle of insults hurled in rhymed verse, and he was really good at it. Politicians were terrified that he might say something about them. Before Mighty Sparrow, Calypso singers were paid in food and drink. He changed that. He demanded to be paid like everyone else and led a strike among Calypso singers in 1957, really changing the industry itself. In 1964, Sparrow released a seven-minute song called Slave, focused on Trinidad's brutal history. It was that song that Bob Marley said caused him to move into songs about social justice. In the middle of the 18th century, slave owners put a moratorium on African-style drums in Trinidad, and um, in defiance, the slaves made use of industrial steel and oil drums to create what is now called the steel pan. It was around then that Calypso lyrics became more... Uh, issue-oriented. Originally, Mighty Sparrow was born with the already kind of boss name of Springer Francisco, but he was given the nickname Mighty Sparrow. Lord Kitchener, uh, another Calypso artist from Trinidad that we've spoken about in the past, especially during the Sky episode, 
had been the most famous Calypso singer in the 40s, but when he left Trinidad for London in 1948, it really opened up the room for others to, to take, kind of take over. When Sparrow started playing, he was first nicknamed Little Sparrow because of his movements on, up on stage. And up until then, Calypso singers were, were fairly stiff performers physically. Uh, by 1956, he was known as Mighty Sparrow and released his signature song, Gene and Dinah a song about the U.S. military moving out of Trinidad and its effects on, on sex workers. Harry Belafonte's Calypso album came out in 1956, and Sparrow's first LP was in 1958, right when Calypso was booming. RCA signed him, and he released nine albums over the next five years. And in the late 1960s, he teamed up with Byron Lee, who we spoke a lot about in our Scott episode also. There's a Soka cover of... Otis Redding's Try a Little Tenderness on it that kills. Lee and Sparrow worked together on several other albums into the 70s, and in 1975, he worked with Van Dyke Parks on one album for Warner Brothers. Really interesting guy. I had never really known much about him. I think you and me both listen to a lot of music, know a lot about music, real music, not just stuff we talk about. But, like, I hadn't heard him until you would kind of mentioned him a few years ago. Like, is he just criminally underrated because he's amazing i mean his his music sounds like it should be universal yeah i don't know why he wasn't marketed better um and i only found out about him because i really like strut records and their releases and when i saw it uh, on their website and they had a, a sale on it uh, which is kind of a shame too but i grabbed it because it looked really good it's got tons of music on it and it it's amazing i don't understand at all why more people don't know about him yeah, it's, it's it's amazing. And just one clarification, he is not an actual Sparrow? He is not. Well, I was just asking because uh, my band actually has a bird in it. But yours is good, too. I mean, now I'm going to, uh, I'm going <laughs> to play uh, Waldo and Hatebeak, who we talked about quite a bit in the episode. This is Hatebeak with the song Birdsum.
All right, uh, that was Hatebeak with their ferocious lead parrot, uh, Waldo, and a song called Birdsum. This is off their, their main album, Number of the Beak, that was released in 2015, Reptilian Records. Yeah, don't have a lot to say about it. We talked about it quite a bit, but I will say it is a very listenable metal record. I don't have lots of metal records, and this was definitely one I bought mostly for this episode, and because I was... I like to get weird stuff, and this definitely fit that category. But it really is really good. The music's great, and however they integrate his screeching works works really well. So a fun record, cool one to have. I don't put it on too much, only, you know, important dinner parties and, you know, Christmas morning, stuff like that. Just special events. All right. My second uh, song I'm going to play is actually an excerpt. Um, this is an excerpt from... God's Chorus, allegedly by a gentleman named Jim Wilson. That was God's Chorus, or a small excerpt from it, by a guy named Jim Wilson. And it was released originally on SoundCloud or MixCloud, one of those early, early music players on online, somewhere around 2013 or 14. But the record I have is on Trunk Records, so we talked about a ton in our Underwater Music episode last time. It was released on by Johnny Trunk in 2018. It's a really, really cool story, and Joe may have to help me with this because I know he knows a lot about this too. What you heard is crickets extremely slowed down. The story is that the crickets were slowed down to the point where if you took the length of their life compared to the length of an average human life, that's how much they slowed it down. And what comes out is this really quite intriguing, quite 
hypnotizing drone sound. Tom Waits was kind of infatuated by it, and he said this about it. I heard a recording recently of Cricket Slowed Way Down. It sounds like a choir. It sounds like angel music. Something sparkling, celestial with full harmony and bass parts. You wouldn't believe it. Like a sweeping chorus of heaven. It's just slowed down. They didn't manipulate the tapes at all. And there's something to be said for just slowing down the world. He said that a few years after it came out. Not a ton is, is really known about the recording. Jim Wilson is a songwriter, music enthusiast for, you know, Native American sounds, nature, ambience, new age. And the story is that he recorded the crickets and then slowed them down, kind of in, inspired by Basil Kirchin. And so when he played it back, it was just this this huge, beautiful sound that just sounded like really nothing else. Very drony, And the whole idea was that it was just what you hear was just what the crickets sound like. There's been many, many videos online that have kind of manipulated the tapes that are provided because the baseline is just normal cricket sounds. And then underneath it is the slowed down songs or slowed down crickets. And more or less, most people believe that it was kind of like jingle cats where there's cricket sounds, but they cheated a little bit and kind of uh, changed the sounds, the notes to make it a little bit more musical. And it doesn't sound like it's truly natural music. Either way, it's something amusing, amazing and it's, it's beautiful and it, it has that kind of power with it. I just think it was it's an amazing record. It's an amazing thing to listen to. And it's just one of the most kind of relaxing and calm things you could put on. Joe, you have any thoughts about it? To me, it sounds like things that um, people like Gavin Breyer's brilliant artists and composers strive for this kind of sound their entire careers. And what they hit are sometimes higher, uh, but not quite the same. And it seems like this is the kind of thing that a lot of a lot of those artists are looking for. Um, and it's just it is out there, uh, which is which is really interesting. There's two possibilities. One is that it is just the beauty of nature. And, and like Tom White said, it's moral that we should slow down things and just kind of listen to things differently. Or it's just an amazing manipulation of natural sounds that has become more than the sum of its parts. And either way, it's certainly worth listening to and a record worth having if you can find it. And really cool sound. Our last song for the night is by Jack Blanchard and Misty Morgan, and it is called Tennessee Birdwalk.
It's a good way to, to kind of close out the show with that song there. <laughs> uh, that was Jack Blanchard and Misty Morgan from their album Birds of a Feather, put out on Wayside Records in 1969, and the song was Tennessee Birdwalk. Uh, many of you may have heard that before. It was a number one hit on the country charts and 23 on the pop charts. Uh, it was originally on Shelby Singleton's Smash label, which was a mm-hmm. Mercury subsidiary. It's funny, the with the with Blanchard and Morgan, they were actually born in the same hospital in Buffalo, but three years apart. They both spent their childhoods in Ohio. In 1963, they, they met for the first time in Florida, where they were working separately with uh, Blanchard as a musician and comedian and Morgan as a pianist. Really just kind of a strange story how that worked out. Jack's voice is often described as the Velvet Saw, which is very cool. Oh, what a good name. Yeah, right? They're sort of like Supper Club, Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra. I think the record label is probably looking for something similar to Johnny Cash and June Carter, Lee Hazelwood, Nancy Sinatra, Sonny and Cher. I think they wanted somebody maybe a little, a, a group maybe a little bit easier to control. That duo might have been a little bit uh, easier to keep under their thumb than than those others who had much stronger personalities. I, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. A lot of you have heard the song. It's just goofy fun. Blanchard and Morgan are not actually animals. They don't use animals on the <laughs> album. They're, they're human people. And that's our last song for the evening. That may be our four most diverse songs we've ever put together on an episode. Like a Calypso song, a metal, bird metal, like cricket ambient music and then just kind of fun country pop i mean it's yeah. pretty cool that the animal kingdom has space for us all it's a real garden of eden something for everyone <laughs> or something for no one which is how i think entertainment tonight described our podcast <laughs> <laughs> so i think we're now down to trivia right we're down to trivia so what we're going to do is we're going to play the track again it's got 12 different songs uh by 12 different musical artists and you just have to name as many as you can so here we go How many do you think you can get? I'm hoping I can get six. Okay, let's do it.
I've got the cramps with chicken. Yep, that opens it up. I think Osmutantes is on there. Nope. No. Okay, then I'm not going to get six. Uh, B-52s <laughs> are on there. Yes. Hank Williams with Alan at the Moon. Yes. Is there a Pink Floyd song on there? There is Pink Floyd's Pink Floyd's Pigs, yeah. Pigs, Good. that's right. Okay. Um, and either Jane's Addiction or Porno for Pyros, the Ben Caught Stealing song. Yep, Jane's Addiction. Good. Um, I would assume, but I didn't hear it, or at least I'm not sure I heard it. I thought the Beatles might be on there. Yep, the Beatles. Good morning, good morning. Okay. With the barn yawn sound. Very good. That's that's six, I think. That's six. I got one. I guess seven. Got six. Yeah. I'll stop with that. That's that's not bad. This is this would be hard to get. If anybody can get to all twelve out there, send us an email. Nobody could do this. I I made the quiz and I couldn't even do it. All right. In order, it went: the Cramps with the song "Chicken," the Beatles with "Good Morning," "Good Morning," uh, the B52s "Rock Lobster." This is the one I'm surprised you didn't get. Scott Walker, Jolson and Jones, has that great donkey braying sound. And then you got uh, Hank Williams Sr. with Howling at the Moon. The Smiths, Meet is Murder. The weird kind of electronic monkey one that was Nico with Innocent in Vain. That would have been a tough one. And then the next one was Jack White, Wanton Abel. And I thought you might get that one just because it's on that um, ultra weird LP and the uh, locked groove at the end of one of the sides. I think it's like the outside locked groove. You know, the record goes inside to out. It's crows. It's those crows. Okay. Didn't recognize it at all. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting record just to play. And then you got Pink Floyd Pigs, The Congos, uh, Children Crying. That was some of the cows in the background. Great record. Jane's Addiction, Ben Caught Stealing. And the last one was Kate Bush with Dreaming. You did really good. That was a tough quiz. That was not one where you're expected to get them all. I'm okay with getting getting half. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I guess we need to uh, say thank you to our podcast network, Pantheon, who didn't shut us down during our two-year... Vacation. Hi- hiatus? Strike? I don't know No, we weren't striking. We love those people. They're the <laughs> kindest folk on the planet. Absolutely. We just took a nap. We do. All right. Do we have social media? Sure. We have an email account that I believe gets checked at some point by our intern. Yep. And that email address <laughs> is highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. We have a Twitter handle of highwayhifipod. We have Instagram, which is actually something that gets used. Highway High Five Pod there, I think, is also our handle. And we are on Facebook. Or you are. Right? I guess we both we both kind of look at We both are. I don't if if you if you post something or we'll we'll get it eventually. If if we don't answer in a few days, it's that's normal. Instagram I check pretty regular and email I check. So say hello. That would mean a lot to us. Um we really appreciate everybody who's listened and who's who's stuck with us, or maybe you're just finding us, maybe you're a real animal sounds person, and that's great. So I wanted to just say thanks to Travis for, for being excited that the show is back. And additionally, um, in other news, my friend Eric, his daughter Maggie, is playing and on tour with Simon Joyner right now. So if you get a chance to see, um, they 
might have finished up, but um, if you get a chance to see Simon Joyner, you always should. But right now, it's an added bonus of, of hearing hearing Maggie play with him, too. That's really cool. Yeah, really it's cool. great. Really exciting. And finally, if you got some extra money, go support a local record store or an artist. We definitely always want to be pushing you to spend your money on on people who could who are making great music or getting you great music lots of worthy labels and artists and stores so uh, take that into consideration and we will see you next time it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.